Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And I will be reading verses 1 through 10 for the sake of solidarity, that we can get through the entire paragraph, but the message is focusing on verses 1 through 7. Beginning in verse 1, hear now the word of the Lord. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. As we discussed and heard from Larry this morning, this past Thursday was Ascension Day, according to the traditional church calendar, and we more or less celebrated it this morning with Larry's sermon pertaining to the Lord's Ascension into Heaven, especially as it is connected to His office of being our Heavenly High Priest. Tonight's text also touches upon the Lord's Ascension, but we'll be focusing more on the presupposition of ascension, descent. More specifically, we'll ask questions like, why did Jesus descend from heaven in the first place? Why did creation descend into sin and corruption with the fall of Adam and Eve? One answer for these questions is a Latin phrase which comes from Augustine, Felix culpa. Felix is an adjective which can mean happy, blessed, or fortunate, while culpa is a noun which means fault, guilt, or fall. So together, Felix culpa means fortunate fall. So when asked these kinds of questions, why did Christ have to descend from heaven? Why did Adam and Eve sin? Why is there evil and death in this world that God created? Why do I keep sinning and suffering in this way? We can answer these kinds of questions with Felix Culpa, fortunate fall. And tonight's passage in particular evidences the truthfulness of our fortunate fall, for we will see that Not only Adam's fall, but our own personal falling into sin serves as the foundation of supremely displaying 
God's grace, mercy, and love, all for the sake of his glory. Again, not only Adam's fall, but our own personal falling into sin serves as the foundation for supremely displaying God's grace, mercy, and love all to his own glory. But another way to think about this point is that Ephesians 2, 1 through 7, I think, inverts the common phrase, what goes up must come down. You know, we, we often use this phrase about many different things, whether it's the housing market or roller coasters. What goes up must come down. But I think Paul, Paul's teaching here inverts it to what goes down must come up. Specifically, what goes down must come up as the Son of God descends from heaven to not only redeem a people for himself, but to make them alive, raise them up, and seat them with him in heaven where Christ has ascended. So in proceeding through this familiar passage, we'll divide it into two main sections. The first of which... Uh, being verses 1 through 3 and the second, 4 through 7. And each section will have three corresponding points. So the, the first sec- section will look at three culpi. Now, I checked with our resident Latinist to make sure I pluralized that correctly. It was pronouncing it correctly. I can't be some fool up here adding an S to the end of culpa thinking I'm, I'm right. So culpi or rather three points concerning our fallen condition. And the second section will have three points concerning the fortunate and happy realities of being united with Christ in his life, resurrection, and ascension. So getting into our text now, the first main point of Paul's argument in Ephesians 2 is stated boldly and sharply in verse 1, just straight out of the gate, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. The rest of this first section builds off of this main point, that you are dead. Verses 2 through 3 simply elaborate more on what it means to be dead in our trespasses and sins. So our first culpa is rather straightforward, spiritual death. In our sin, we have no breath, no pulse, no consciousness, no life. Our estate before God is utterly helpless and completely powerless, and our hearts are entirely iced over like a glacial wall. This is the mitigated fulfillment of God's warning from the very beginning, that uh, warning Adam and Eve that the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. I say mitigated fulfillment because Adam and Eve did not physically die the moment they disobeyed God's command. Rather, their relationship with God was devastatingly ruptured resulting in a kind of spiritual death characterized by a sinful nature and separation from God's presence of blessing. God allowed them to live and multiply, albeit in a world filled with thorns and labor pains that would eventually result in a return to the dust. 
It is only by virtue of God's grace that any of us still physically breathe and live despite our rebellion against the creator of the universe. Moreover, we must remember that spiritual death is not something that merely happens to us. We cherish it. We long for it. We defend it. Yes, because of original sin, we inherit Adam's guilt and are born with a sinful nature, but we grow to treasure this sin and sinful nature beyond our imagination. We are not passive zombies who wish they could be cured from the sickness of sin. We are active rebels who hate God and relish in their death. This is our estate outside of Christ. Moving on to verse 2, Paul elaborates more on the nature of being dead in our trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. When we are walking in our trespasses and sins, living and moving in them, Paul says that we were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. In other words, in our spiritual death, we live in a coordinates with a corrupted world and in allegiance to a wicked ruler. Therefore, our second culpa is spiritual treachery. By rebelling against God, we align ourselves with the enemy and all who serve him. Indeed, the, the course of this world is more than immoral social habits or crooked cultural norms. It denotes an entire temporal world order which is defined by sin, darkness, and corruption. In following the course or age of this world, we willingly follow the prince of the power of the air who is most often understood to be Satan himself. Paul seems to communicate to us that this prince and his influence is as pervasive, universal, local, and invisible as the air is around us. We can't really escape the presence of air without doing some detriment to ourselves. So there's, just as air is always around us, so this influence of this prince of the power of the air seems to as well. Moreover, in the Greek context in which Paul is communicating and teaching here, Air was often thought to fill the space between the earth and the moon. So it's a broader concept than our contemporary understanding of air as localized within earth's atmosphere. It is a broader concept that coheres more with the spiritual realm, the invisible realm, which Paul would later touch on and teach on in Ephesians 6, discussing spiritual warfare. Due to his widespread influence, Paul attributes Satan as the primary one who actively works in the sons of disobedience, which is another title for those who are spiritually dead in their trespasses and sins, although with a, a different nuance. 
Significantly, the sons of disobedience are labeled this precisely because of who their father is. As Jesus called the Pharisees children of the devil in John's gospel because of their hatred and lying, so all who are outside of Christ are children of the disobedient one and therefore sons of disobedience. So, Understand, be reminded of this, that Satan in ways that we do not fully understand does influence the people and world around us and ought to be seriously prayed against and worked against in our own humble obedience to the Lord of life and proclamation of his gospel and his kingdom. Satan thus rules this world age with cruel power and pervasive presence seeking to enslave as many to sin and consume as many to death. In our sin, we commit spiritual treachery and pledge allegiance to this world age of sin and under its prince of darkness. Moving to verse 3, Paul continues to build upon his previous statements, this time expanding upon the term the sons of disobedience which he says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We find here our third culpa, spiritual enslavement. So we've encountered spiritual death, spiritual treachery, now spiritual enslavement. We were all once enslaved to our sinful habits and the passions of the flesh. And the flesh here is not so much our our physical bodies and the the meat on our bones, but more so the, the principle of sin which pervades our whole being and is in harmony with the world age or the course of this world. And outside of Christ, we are slaves of sin, and we're slaves to this flesh. As Paul teaches elsewhere in Romans, he says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. So Paul again teaches that slavery to sin leads all the more to death. In one sense, we were all enslaved to Satan, as seems to be an implication of the allegiance to the prince of the power of the air. But in another, more immediate sense, we are willingly enslaved to our sinful passions and desires, such as those listed by Paul in Galatians 5. He speaks of the works of the flesh, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, and so on and so forth. In this enslaved state, when we desire these kinds of passions, we carry out the desires of the body and of the mind, as Paul continues. This is Paul's elaboration on what it means to be living in the passions of the flesh, which is the defining characteristic of the sons of disobedience. They live in their passions So what Paul is communicating is that both our body and our minds carry out and indulge in sin. We sin in our actions and we sin in our thoughts. 
Enslavement to our flesh affects our entire being, our minds, our wills, and our feelings. And this, this point of the per- pervasiveness of sin uh, once came to sharp relief when I was having an apologetic and evangelistic encounter with my own cousin one time who, who would claim to be an atheist, agnostic kind of person. Um, him and I were sending each other Google Docs as, as letters back and forth. And in one of them, I shared with him the gospel and I made the point about the severity of sin that if I have hatred towards someone in my heart, in the Lord's eyes, it's just as condemning as if I were to actually murder that person. He responded pretty aggressively to such a claim. My cousin said, said the following, If I hate someone in my heart, it's the same as murdering them in God's eyes, quoting me. To hold this viewpoint is absurd to me. We as humans have autonomy, agency over our actions, but not always over our emotions. If everyone that hated in their hearts but refrained from actual murder were the same as true killers, what is the point of refraining? Why not kill if it is the same? Refraining from action is precisely the most important aspect of this example of morality. It is literally the only thing separating a decent human from a murderer. Hate and lust are not crimes. Murder and rape are. We do not control our urges. We control our actions. Well stated from him. To which I responded, I understand your feeling of absurdity. If our desires and thoughts are truly morally culpable, meaning we have to make an account for them before God's holy throne, then there is truly no hope for us. That is indeed what the Christian message is. The law of God holds that kind of standard, and that standard is meant to make apparent and Obvious to us how desperately in need we are for a Savior. I could say what he responded with, but we'll keep on moving. (laughs) Returning to our text, we see that this desperate need for a Savior is highlighted all the more by Paul when he concludes verse 4 with the fact that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The universality of sin is as deep as it is broad. All of mankind is found in the spiritual death, treachery, and enslavement, and it is definitional to who we are outside of Christ. The lineage of depravity derives from our father Adam, from whom sin entered the world and death came to all humanity. Going through this first section, we see that this has been quite the fall. And we are stuck wondering and asking what could ever be fortunate about this terrible fall and its cosmic consequences? What could ever be fortunate about plague and famine? What could ever be fortunate about murder and injustice? What could ever be fortunate about my addiction? What could ever be fortunate about the pain that I have caused 
others. The sheer magnitude of the devastation from sin far surpasses our comprehension. But praise be to God that the magnitude of God's grace is truly incomprehensible and gloriously surpasses any and all sin and suffering. Praise be to God that as we finally make our shift to the second section of our passage, that God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We see the manifestation and expression of God's love and mercy in that Christ's work of redemption is applied to us. That Christ's life becomes our life. That Christ's resurrection becomes our resurrection. That Christ's ascension becomes our ascension. And not only what Christ has done becomes ours, but who Christ is himself becomes ours and we become his. And all of this is by virtue of our union with him by grace through faith. By our union with Christ, we are vivified, made alive. We are raised and seated with Him all to His glory. Because of our union with Christ, we are vivified from our spiritual death. We are raised up with Him to the presence of the Father, forsaking our spiritual treachery and pledging allegiance to God's kingdom and the one true King. And we are seated with Christ, freed from our spiritual enslavement as we now rule for Christ and his kingdom. The glacial ice which once encased our hearts melts before the fiery radiance of God's sacrificial love. The fierce hostility of our treachery is brought to an end by the calming beacon of God's luminous mercy and the binding chains of willful enslavement are broken and cast off by God's empowering grace. We thus find that even in the midst of our sinful lives, and even in the midst of, of this still hurting and broken world, that union with Christ itself is a reality of Felix Culpa. It's, it's, it's a fortunate and happy reality in the midst of this fallen world. And to say it another way, the more we meditate on our union with Christ and all of the blessings which come with it, we will begin to see how our sin and suffering pales in comparison to knowing and loving Jesus Christ. Moreover, we, sh we should take note of the past tense here that's used of being vivified, of being made alive. You are raised up and you are seated with Christ. These bless blessings of being in Christ are true and present realities inaugurated with his 
first coming and with the redemption He has accomplished, we are truly given spiritual life in the here and the now. As, as Jesus Himself taught in John 5.24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And to quote a wonderful passage from John Murray on Union with Christ, he says, What is it that binds past and present and future together in the life of faith and in the hope of glory? Why does the believer entertain the thought of God's determinate counsel with such joy? Why can he have patience in the perplexities and adversities of the present? Why can he have confident assurance with reference to the future and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God? It is because the Christian cannot think of past, present, or future apart from union with Christ. It is the union with Christ now in the virtue of his death and the power of his resurrection that certifies to him the reality of his election in Christ before the foundation of the world. He is blessed by the Father with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ, just as he was chosen in Christ from eternal ages. And he has the seal of an eternal inheritance because it is in Christ that he is sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise as the earnest of his, of his inheritance unto the redemption of the purchased possession. Apart from union with Christ, we cannot view past, present, or future with anything but dismay and Christless dread. By union with Christ, the whole complexion of time and eternity is changed and the people of God may rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, end quote. The, our union with Christ, when it becomes a reality, it's like a, the seed of a mighty tree that grows up to where now it, its branches stretch forth from eternity past to eternity future, and we find and know our place in the universe and our place in history and saying, I have a story, and it's in union with my Lord and my Redeemer. But this union with Christ does, in fact, have a purpose. Paul gives us this all-important purpose clause in verse 7 of our passage, saying that we were raised up and seated with Christ so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The redemption which Jesus accomplished with his incarnation, humiliation, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, and the redemption which Jesus applies to us with our regeneration, our justification, our sanctification, all other benefits of our salvation, is meant to proclaim the unfathomable depths of God's love and majestic heights of God's grace to the praise of his ever-expanding glory. 
We were once spiritually dead and sinfully rebellious against our Creator, and we deserved divine justice that would have annihilated us faster than snuffing out a smoldering candle wick. But instead, we were shown the infinitely glorious grace, the grace of God which flows from the infinite and incomparable Lord of grace, Jesus Christ. And so we now have, as we've gone through this passage, we have an answer for the notorious problem of evil. How could an all-good, all-knowing, all-powerful God create a world that would fall into evil? God voluntarily created all things to be supremely glorified. And in order to be supremely glorified, God allowed the fall to happen so that the true depths of His love, of His grace, of His mercy, of His patience, forgiveness, and justice might be supremely displayed in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ on the cross. In short, Felix Culpa. Fortunate fall. But this is not merely a point about winning arguments with atheists and agnostics. This is about the problem of your evil, the problem of your sin. It is the answer, Felix Culpa is the answer for trying to understand why you and I keep sinning and why you and I continue to suffer. For every sin we commit in Christ, in that tension we feel and that pain we go through, we, we simply plunge deeper into the wells of His grace, thereby discovering even more glory to be given to God. So Christian, be, be encouraged in this. For every sinful habit and desire that you kill, By the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells in you, God is glorified by the power of His transforming and sanctifying grace. But also know that for every sin and every fleshly habit that persists and won't go away, despite daily repentance, God is glorified by the power of His forgiving and pardoning mercy. Your continued fight against sin is not in vain. God's grace is magnified and His forgiveness deepened each time we sin. And likewise, be reminded of this. The suffering we endure outside of our control is not in vain either. Just to quote Paul again, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. 2 Corinthians 4, 17-18. But some of you might think, if it is true that God is glorified even in my persistent sin and sin that won't go away, then 
why even fight sin in the first place? Well, don't worry, you're not the first to think of that objection. Paul, uh, pretty early on in his letter to the Romans, uh, responds to it. And he says, But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that God make, uh, that that good may come, as many people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. So Paul quickly and sharply rebukes the idea that we can abuse grace. And know this, grace abused is grace entitled, and grace entitled is no grace at all. Grace abused is grace entitled, and grace entitled is no grace at all. So in concluding now, what does it look like to live in light of Felix Culpa? It is to believe that from eternity past, God decreed that what goes down must come up. Specifically, it is to believe that God decreed what goes down with my son in the grave must come up with his resurrection and ascension. In addition to this, there is a Christian band that I thoroughly enjoy named King's Kaleidoscope. And they have a song titled Felix Culpa. And I'd like to end by reading these lyrics because I think they do in fact capture some sense of what it looks like for the Christian to live in light of Felix Culpa, which is to live in the reality that, again, not only Adam's fall, but our own falling into sin serves as the foundation for supremely displaying God's glorious grace, mercy, and love. The song goes like this. Turn the lights on. Look at what I have. See the twisted trophies of a dead man. Countless stories tell of sin and pain, but they sing the sweetness of my Savior's grace. I'm a torn man, spirit fighting flesh. There's a battle raging deep in my chest, but all that haunts me all that leaves a stain only sings the sweetness of my Savior's grace. A fortunate fall, my sins are stories of grace to recall. A fortunate fall, I glory in my sins forgiven. Jesus bought me, and now I am His. Dying with Him in His death, I now live. All my vices to which I was chained only speak the sweetness of my Savior's grace. A fortunate fall, my sins are stories of grace to recall. A fortunate fall, I glory in my sins forgiven. And still, I'm a wicked, wretched man. I do everything I hate. I am fighting to be God. I seethe and claw and thrash and shake. 
I have killed and stacked the dead on a throne from which I reign. In the end, I just want blood, and with his blood, my hands are stained. But see the God who reigns on high. He has opened his own veins. From his wounds, a rushing torrent that can wash it all away. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we praise your name. We thank you for your grace that you have given us in Christ. That despite our sins, no matter how long they might persist, your grace surpasses them all. Because you sent your Son to die for all who may believe and trust in your name and thereby be united with you in your death, your resurrection, and ascension. Would you please keep this in our minds as we leave this place now? Would you please strengthen our hearts to live in light of Felix Culpa? In your name we pray for all these things. Amen.